I'm sure of very little when it comes to the future of Christianity. I do know this one thing, and it's that I'm not going back. And I grew up in a world, I was born in Lynchburg, Virginia, uh, in the lap of Jerry Falwell and his enormous earlobes, uh, which were <laughs> impressive. My father was one of his, his little cronies. They invented the moral majority, which all the, the kids then called the uh, immoral minority because we could see behind the curtain a little bit what was really happening. And I guess, you know, I'm, 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 uh, I'm, I'm a product of the best that fundamentalism can produce and evangelicalism at that. I even sort of followed God's calling on my life and I went to, to study the Bible in Israel, the holiest of all lands. Um, and now I find myself in the ministry, as it was called when I was a kid. Anyway, um, I was taught, and I believe to a certain extent, that God had a plan for my life. And finding this plan was, you know, a bit difficult to do, but it was like a good plan, plans to like prosper and, you know, not to harm me and all this, this sort of stuff. And um, a couple of years ago, I decided I was going to ask God what this plan was. All right, let's have it out. I want to know what I should do with my life, what I'm supposed to do with my life, what your plan for my life is. Um, I was living in Israel. I was a student. I was about to graduate. I had a degree in history and geography of the first temple period from 1054 to 586 BC. It's very marketable. Like my English degree is very marketable. And so I didn't know what to do. And I could keep going in academics. I could move on. Um, because that's usually what people do who have multiple degrees. And, or I could go back to the church world. I had left Mars Hill Bible Church where Rob Bell was the pastor. I was the music leader. I did that for four years before I, before I went to Israel. So I could go back there, but I wasn't sure if I could go back to the church because, you know, I had all these questions. But then, you know, if they were to dangle a paycheck, I'd probably, suddenly all my doubts would probably vanish and I, maybe I would go back. And um, anyway, I decided to ask God what, what I should, should do with my life. Um, but I didn't know if God had a plan. And I didn't even know if such a thing as like the will of God even existed. I was sitting at my desk one uh, evening in, in Jerusalem, I, um, near a street called Emek Rafaim, and a teenager just walked into uh, Cafe Hillel and blew up their torso and killed seven people. And this was the not, not the first um, of these that we were near. But this one was different for some reason because it was my street, my... Uh, where I shopped and ate and where my, my, uh, my kids, where I took my kids and, and my wife and where I met my friends and, and something in the aftermath of, of that, uh, it was like something about God collapsed. I mean, the will of God. I, I, before I left, my dad said, you know, the safest place to be is in the will of God. And, you know, now what, you know, how is this the will of God in any, in any respect? And so, I don't know, something fell apart and I tried to put that aside and say, all right, I'm confused. I admit that. But I'm going to honestly ask God what I should do with my life. I want to know. So a fitting place for that is Mount Sinai. I was on a 10-day field study there uh, in Egypt. And I said, on the final day, I'm going to climb Mount Sinai at night, wait for the sunrise. I'm going to pray. I'll get out my little book of prayers, the Hebrew uh, uh, Psalms. And see if God, I mean, I don't need the Ten Commandments. It was just like something, some kind of hint or, or clue that, I don't know, that I wasn't alone or something. So I set out on this quest 
And in my mind, it was like, a, this is gonna be like a, a man versus wild spiritual quest. I'm gonna be climbing Mount Sinai. I'm gonna be alone, you know? And I set out and the moon is there and, and I, I, I go 100 feet or so and there are these Bedouin and they're like, oh, camel ride, camel ride. Take, take, it's too far to walk, take a camel, you know? It's like, no, I, I'm good. I, I'm still on the path. 100 yards, more camel rides. And I start to see tents and generators, and hot chocolate, and Snickers, and then I'm passing Russian women in, heel, in heels, um, you know, Asians taking selfie photos, and it's just getting very kind of strange, and I, and, and I realize I'm vastly underdressed for this experience, and it's getting very cold, and I worked up quite a sweat, and now I'm like actually starting to get scared, because I'm like shivering, and I, I cannot calm down. At one point, I look, and in the cleft of a rock is like this hat, like a ski cap that Moses must have used or something. So I just pick it up and put it on and, and dust is falling on, on. I get to the top of Mount Sinai and the traditional site of Mount Sinai. And uh, there's a Bedouin there to greet me, renting $10 blankets. And that's exactly what I did. I was so cold. I rented a blanket for $10. I wrapped up and I waited for the sunrise. And I got out my book of Psalms, and at the time I was obsessed with Hebrews, so I thought, hey, maybe God speaks Hebrew, so I'll try them in Hebrew. So I, I began to pray a, a little bit and, I, and I, I, I hear something. I hear not, not one voice, but I hear something like voices. And it sounds like, here comes the sun. Doo -doo -doo -doo. And, and, and I start to look around and sure enough, hundreds of people that I didn't know were there are scattered around and they're singing, here comes the sun. And they're cheering and they're high-fiving and they're clapping. And this is it. And I, I'm trying to have like a spiritual moment here. And, and, then, and then I'm distracted. I think, what, am I, what the hell am I even doing up here? You know, asking God, like, what, a, you know, and it's the Beatles and it's just strange. And so I head back down the mountain. I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm angry at myself. And, and I'm walking down with all these people. And, and I get to this little staging area where all the camels were just like resting from carrying tourists up the mountain. And one, one camel decides this is my victim. And it reaches out and lunges for me. And I do like a, a ninja move to try to protect myself. And, and the camel swallows my elbow and my entire arm. And he's yanking. And, and he's tugging. And I'm in a lot of pain. And, and, and out, out of me comes this a string of... of I know I can swear here, but it's the particular combination of, of words that came out of me that I'd rather not say. I mean, they came right out of the depths of my being. And the only thing I can think, and these words have never been uttered on Sinai, I can promise you that. It's certainly not in this combination. So I, I reach back, and the only thing I can think to do to save my life is to punch the camel in the face. So I reach back, and I swing, and all of a sudden, for a moment, I imagine a Bedouin leaping on my back with like a Lawrence of Arabia knife and, and slitting my throat and saying, don't touch my camel. So I, I hesitate for one second and then I go for it and I swing and he lets go. And I, I could sort of stagger and he's looking at me in the face. I can feel his hot breath, his nostrils. He's five inches from my face. He takes a little breath and then spits snot all over my face. So what happened to me on Mount Sinai <laughs> really was symbolic of something. It was symbolic of something that was falling apart or had already fallen, fallen apart for me. Whatever worked, 
once was gone forever. And, and, it was not, and it was not going to come back. God was not going to show up. He was not going to tell me what to do with my life. There was not going to be divine intervention. It was going to be camels. It was going to be Bedouin. It was going to be doubts. It was going to be confusion. It was going to be bruises on my arm. That's it. The spiritual life is not like some mountain. And I get there and there's God and it's like, oh, great. My actual life is it. That's it. And I'm not sure what I really think about this whole God thing anymore. My childhood God was gone. That's what happened to me in Israel slowly over time. Maybe it started long before I ever went away to graduate school or did whatever I did. And um, it, it, something in me changed and shifted. Um, a friend of mine asked me, if you could ask God anything, what would it be? Very simply, what happened? That's what I want to know. What happened to you? Not where are you, but just what happened? I don't know. I have no idea what happened. I went to Liberty University, speaking of Jerry Falwell, and um, we had this guy in chapel, and he, we called him Father God, I just, because his prayers were always, Father God, I just want to thank you right now, and Father God, I just... <laughs> that, <laughs> that God was gone. And, I, and honestly, I'm not sure what's next. Even now, I know I'm a pastor. I'm, not, I'm, I'm really not sure what's next. I don't know what's next for the future of Christianity. Um, I, you know, I've read the right books and the ground of all being. And, you know, I know there are alternatives to this, to the man upstairs, but, but I, don't, I don't know. Um, and I don't like worship music. <laughs> so it was funny because at the beginning of Mars Hill, Rob... Bell, I don't think like the sermon and I didn't like worship music. And so we're like, Hey, come to our church, you know? So, um, but there's one song. Okay. And maybe you've heard the line, but I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon the cross. Are you familiar with this? I'm sorry if you wrote this song. I do do this from time to time. I like say things and the context is bad. Like, um, I, I, I was complaining about this Holy land experience in Orlando. Are you familiar with this? It's like, Israel, except an amusement park in Orlando. And I was complaining about it. I was like, the problem with that is it's just stupid. It's dumb. And, and a woman overhears me and says, you know, my husband and I have given millions of dollars to make that thing happen. I'm like, oh, okay. I think I'll go over here. So anyway, if you wrote that song, I'm sorry. Okay, here's, the, here's the reality. We will not know because there's nothing to know. We will never know what it costs to see our sin because there's nothing to know. How, 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 how is that knowledge of any sort. See, I, I believed that. Maybe you believe it or, or, or believed it past tense. I don't know. Um, but that doesn't necessarily make it true. And, and it certainly didn't help. It didn't help me. It didn't help me feel forgiven or whole or put back together or free. It actually was the, quite the opposite. It made me a very fearful person. Maybe you'll never know the meaning of the cross until, I don't know, God goes away and things don't work out. And it seems like history just is and the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune and just stuff just happens and it doesn't seem like there is any God that is in control of anything. Maybe the man in the clouds doesn't show up and God is silent and, and God's will is unknown. You know, Jesus prayed, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I think that's because God did leave Jesus behind. Where was Yahweh? Wasn't Yahweh like the interventionist God, like the Exodus God? Hey, I'm here to save you all. Uh, the Passover God, he pa but he couldn't pass over Jesus. It just, he didn't show up. He did actually like leave Jesus behind 
the father who sort of works all things out for the better, it didn't seem to really work for Jesus either. So what if the pattern, the pattern, um, cross-bearing, the pattern of Jesus, the, the cross-bearing, the unknown mission, the disappointment, the lack of divine intervention, the death of God, the death of Yahweh, one's own death. What if that's the past? It's the same, like you're supposed to take up your cross, but if you're like an evangelical, what do you do with it? You're like, hey, I've got my cross, but I see Jesus, you've already done it all. So what do I do with mine? Do I just like set it down? Thank you for doing it. So anyway, let me say one thing about belief and then I'll get to five points. I have five points. Um, a belief that, um, that doesn't cost you anything just doesn't seem really worth much. I mean, you can believe in the Trinity, you can believe in the virgin birth, you can believe Jesus is the son of God, you can believe, but it doesn't cost you anything. What does it cost you to believe any of that stuff? Any doctrine, essentially, what does it cost you? Nothing. But if you risk, I don't know, believing in love, if you risk believing in forgiveness, in compassion, this is what Jesus seems to do. He seems to risk believing in Forgiveness. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. He risks that even unto death. That seems like worth believing in because it's a belief that costs us something. That's risky business. So maybe those are the kinds of beliefs that should stick around. So anyway, I am talking about the death of God. And I'm also saying I don't know what a resurrection of this God looks like. I don't know. I feel like we're three days in the grave. I, that's how I feel. We're three days in the grave and I don't, I'm just waiting. And I think the church is, that's what I think about the church right now, 21st century. So here are five things. Hints and guesses, I call them. You know, from T.S. Eliot, I've got five hints or guesses about the future. And let, me, and let me say one more thing. Whoops. Let me say one more thing. I heard Richard Rohr say, you can only take people as far as you yourself have gone. And I thought, that's not true. <laughs> Apparently he's never heard a sermon because that's like my job. I take people further than I've gone. You know, it's a sermon. <laughs> but, but now I guess that I've been doing this for a while and I taught high school for six years and I'm, now I'm teaching it in a, a bigger room, I guess. Um, I think it's true now. So what I'm saying, these five things, these are things that I, this is as far as I've gone. That's what I'm saying. This is as far as I've gone, no, no further really. So here's number one. You are not the problem. You are not the problem. I mean you, without God, without religion, without language, just you, as you are, as a man, as a woman, uh, whatever, your, your faults, your fears, your mistakes, your sins, you are not the problem. That is Something I am, I will never again give a sermon or write a paragraph that communicates to people that you are the problem from a divine point of view, that God cannot look at you without his Jesus glasses or covering you in blood. I'm just mean, you are not the problem. Maybe something like the Yetzer Hara, the Yetzer Tov from Judaism, this is the inclination to do good or evil is maybe a better place, place to start. I don't really know, but I, I do know that um, it's not working. Communicating to people that they are a problem to God. Number two, in us, not for us. In us, not for us. Now, that's not new to me. 
Okay, people have been saying this, that whatever Christianity is, is, is about is something that happens in us, not for us. So, you know, Ronald Rollheiser and, and he, the Paschal mystery is, the, is about our own death and resurrection. Or Nadia has been saying this kind of stuff in, in her most recent book. So resurrection, whatever that is, is something that happens in us, not for us. That's, by the way, where I, maybe I, Tony Jones might, you know, wrestle me later. I don't know. But maybe that's the place to have the atonement discussion. Because a God that does something for us, what does that mean? Some sort of cosmic transaction in the clouds, you know? I just believe, that doesn't work. If there's something true about atonement, maybe it's also something that happens in us, not for us. In any case, that is what I think is needed. And I'm not sure how to get there. I I do know this, um, that if religion has a future, um, it must guide people into their own experience of growth and transformation. You know, anything true happens in us, not for us. It's just like anything that is real happens to the body, in the body, not on behalf of the body. What what would that even mean? So, So here, I don't know what would help, but I think of things like nature, the soil, the sun, physical things, things that connect us back to the body, like crunching on bread and wine or splashing babies with water or whatever the case may be. These are things that take, take us back to the body, back to nature, back to a, to a sense of who we are as human beings. And maybe we discover in that these patterns that seem to be true. Anyway, number three, we should give up on the afterlife for a while. I'm not gonna say forever because that's and then it's like a, eternal statement. So I'll just say for a while, we should give up, give it up. Um, I had a rabbi, I had a rabbi for rabbinic Judaism. One day I just had this like, back to fundamentalism. I just, I had to do, we were on a walk. I just said, you know, rabbi, if you were to die right now, would you be absolutely sure you would go to heaven? And he stops and he looks at me and says, just very simply, that's, that's not an important question. You know, oh, well, it is to everybody else. <laughs> Anyway, whatever this obsession is, who goes where, and look, death is the dark door of mystery. In fact, what I think might help Christianity is if if we twist Pascal's wager just a little bit and say, let's live as if there is no afterlife, so that somehow we make the most of what we do know, which is this particular life. So number four. Authority, and now people talk about, oh, you know, whatever, postmodernism, the authority. Where's our authority now? Authority comes from existential, experiential, vulnerable, and honest growth. That's what I think. That's it. What other kind of, okay, that can come in dialogue, in conversation with the biblical text. It can come in conversation with church history that makes it rich. But the kind of authority that people are interested in is this kind of authority, existential, experiential, vulnerable, and honest growth. That's what you trust. So if the church says, okay, we're not that, then I guess we know why we don't have any authority. So anyway, here's number five. And this is really the point of my whole speech. We don't know what we mean by God anymore. That's what I think. That's the thing that I I, I wake up in the morning and just wonder about. What do we, I'm not saying we can't talk about God. I'm not saying we can't say anything about God. I'm saying we don't know what we mean by God anymore. And it's troubling. And it might take us, I don't know, like 50 years to 
or a hundred years. I don't know, but we can't go back. We cannot rush back and say, oh, we, we, don't worry. They had it figured out back then. And I don't think we should rush too quickly into the future and just call it, you know, universal consciousness of oneness with the mountain. I don't know. Anyway, you know, Fuller Institute, by the way, <laughs> did this whole thing like kids who whatever leave the faith after high school, they did all these studies or whatever. And they're like, oh no, I don't know if they were interpreting this way, but some people were, oh no, they're leaving the faith. I think good. If 50%, I hope it's 95% because I'm, I, I think God might have to, to collapse. See, my role at Myers Hill is, is to be a part of the tension, uh, the fear, the hope, the unknown, I am in fact standing before the silent and vast wilderness of Sinai asking what happened to God? What happened to you? And I plan to do it from the pulpit for as long as they'll let me, you know, not that everyone will know that every week, but that's what I plan on doing because that's as far as I've gone and I'm not going back. Thank you. Thank you.